This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Warden School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm the senior editor of entrepreneurship at Forbes. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations. We want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with running a business, anything at all, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And remember, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to this show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. And back with us today to help answer those questions is Lou Mosca, Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services. Lou's a regular contributor at Forbes.com and a regular guest on this show. American Management Services is based in Orlando. It's a consulting firm that helps businesses. Lou talks to owners all the time. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're struggling with. Sometimes he struggles with the same issues himself. Welcome back to the show, Lou. How are you today, Lauren? I'm doing great. How are you? Not too bad. Pretty good. 75, sunny in Orlando. Not a bad day. Nice, nice. Glad to hear it. Lou, I got something I got to get off my chest. You know, I, I read your stuff at Forbes.com all the time. I watch your videos. Why are you always picking on Elon Musk? Well, first of all, I don't know that anyone can pick on Elon Musk, right? <laughs> I mean, let's you do. Here. Well, you know, I don't know that I'm picking on him, quite frankly. You know, I, I, you and I should have his – well, you probably already have his net worth, right? But I should have his net worth, so no problem. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think there is um, – Sometimes I think there's a disconnect between being an extraordinary visionary versus being an extraordinary CEO. So I think there is no doubt in anyone's mind that he is crea- is, he's a creative genius. However, you know, the difference between executing and being profitable versus being creative and being hopeful, seems, there seems to be a disconnect. That, that's really my point, Lauren. That's a great point. Um, he, you know, there's been a lot of coverage lately. Everybody knows that uh, Tesla has been struggling. They've made commitments to produce a certain number of cars. It doesn't look like they're going to make those commitments. There was a story this week that uh, Alon's been sleeping on a sofa at the factory. Uh, it's it, it sounds like a predicament that a, a lot of business owners can can relate to. It's interesting that. Um and I, I had read that article also, and on on one hand, I give him a lot of credit for saying this is my responsibility. Let me get out there. You know, so many times you see CEOs and or even elected officials or CEOs say, you know, it's my fault. I'm sorry, but there's no, okay, here's my deliverable. Here's what my response is going to be. It's just the mea culpa. The fact that he may or may not be actually sleeping out on the production floor. I don't think that's the best use of his time, but it certainly creates a picture and a scenario for his shareholders, his investors, for the people purchasing vehicles, and more importantly, his employees, that maybe, just maybe, it's time to draw a line in the sand. So it was interesting when I read that because we have a client right now we're working with in in the Northeast that does about $30 million a year and is having some production problems. And his answer was to move his desk to the middle of the production facility. And Interesting. Our, and our response to him was, it's a good short-term impact. It's not a good long-term business philosophy. So in our world, we're sort of like systems over people. So if you have the right systems in place, the owner shouldn't have to do that. So with Tesla, if you have the right systems in place with the right controls and checks and balances, you can go from being a visionary company to a profitable company. And for whatever reason, they just don't seem to be able to climb that mountain. Interesting. My next question to you was going to be, uh, what can we learn from the, the Tesla situation? What, what takeaway is there for uh, business owners around the country? But the, but the example you gave of your client uh, sounds really interesting. I, I assume the thinking there, 
the the short term thinking is by by putting himself in the middle of the facility, he's got his eyes on everything and can monitor carefully. Uh, you suggest that's not a long term solution. What's what's the next step? How do you get beyond that? Well, let's back up first. My client is actually profitable, so they had some production issues, but my client is actually profitable, and he just thought to make an impact to show his staff how important this was, he would do this on a short-term basis, but the answer is the right systems. So teaching people accountability and a timeline and how they're going to be held accountable is actually the long-term solution. Short-term impact, here's the Band-Aid. Long-term, here's the surgery and what we're going to do to correct the situation. But it's always, always, always with us systems over people, Lawrence. Well, what's the first step in figuring out whether you have the, the right system and how it can be improved? Well, if there's a production issue, then you don't have the right system. <laughs> or, you're, or your people are not being held accountable to it. So, look, I'm, the, I'm a firm believer that without really good people that are really trained properly, that are held accountable, then no matter what your systems are, you're going to have a problem, right? But if you have good systems and a good training and a good career path, then people should want to work together. So I, I just think they go hand in hand. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Lou Mosca. If you have a question about your business, if you're struggling with a particular issue, this is a great opportunity to speak with someone who's been there. Uh, or if you got an opinion about uh, <laughs> about Tesla and Elon Musk, <laughs> give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, Lou, you mentioned that the uh, the weather is, uh, is beautiful in Orlando right now. Uh, it's pretty nice up here now, too, finally. Um, but something that I know you've been paying attention to and thinking about lately is the impact that weather can have on small businesses, on business owners. Uh, right now, when the weather's good, might be a good time to think about that. Actually, uh, you know, you and I had a conversation, I want to bet, about uh, five, six months ago when uh, those hurricanes roared through Florida and other parts of the country. And you, we chatted about the impact of the hurricanes on business and what owners may or may not have been able to do about that in advance. Well, you know, we just had back to back to back to back, it seems like back to back nor'easters. And now I remember. Looking, right, I know you do. And now I'm looking at this weather up in the Midwest somewhere, and you think about it if you're a retail owner on Main Street and the weather is just consistently down, it's a problem for you. We have a, we have a, um, uh, we're working with a Harley Davidson dealer right now. And he's in the Midwest, and their season should have started about three weeks ago. And it just doesn't seem to be getting there. And it's all weather-driven because the people bring their bikes in in March and May, April, and get them tuned and ready for the season. And then their new purchases are, are April and May, and here we are, and they're just behind where they need to be. And you can't make things happen in a Harley-Davidson dealership if you don't have floor traffic. Is that the kind of thing, do you think that gets made up? I mean, if um, if the demand is there, but the weather is bad, will those people, those customers eventually get into the, the showroom? Um, I don't believe that you can make up for a lost hour. Uh, I, You know, I, I just don't believe you can make up for a lost hour. I always struggle with that concept. So if someone was going to buy a motorcycle and they had planned to buy it in March and because of the weather they backed it off to April, so maybe they're going to buy it. Let's say they do. Let's say they do. But the impact on that business owner for the month of March when the 200 people that should have come through the door didn't come through the door just puts that owner in a more precarious position from a revenue perspective, a profitability perspective, and most likely a cash perspective. These are not, you know, these are not $12 billion giants that can weather this storm. These are five, 10, 15, 20, $30 million companies where every day matters. Let's take a phone call. David in Oklahoma, welcome to Mind Your Business. Okay, let's take... Are you mad? Is David mad at you? David, are you there? Yes, yes, I'm here. I was on mute. Sorry. <laughs> Happens to all of us. What's on your mind, David? Quick question about uh, market penetration for new new business. If uh, um, particularly government business, um, what is the best way to go about doing that? Do I need to have a website to do it? And is it better to just show up at the business, knock, and say, hey, these are the services that I offer. Um, are you interested? What, what kind of services are you talking about? Consulting. And who? what market are you looking to go after, David? I'm sorry. The government market. 
Uh, the government market, be it federal government, Department of Defense, GSA, what area in particular, sir? Uh, particularly the VA. The VA. Well, Lauren, you or I? <laughs> Go for it. Okay. So, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm uh, kind of behind the times. I think anyone that is not marketing and, and putting themselves out there in, in every fashion necessary through social media is making a mistake. But I think when it comes to dealing with the federal government in any any way, shape, or form, you got to have boots on the ground. And I think this is a a face-to-face -face type of sell. So a lot of you know a lot of these defense contractors hire the old retired generals and colonels and folks like that because it's get them in the door. So whatever strategy is going to get you in the door is the strategy that's best for you. Then it all comes down to you and your services and obviously your pricing. But not to have a website, even if the website's up strictly for credibility with references and testimonials, you, you have to do that. David, the, the one thing uh, I've heard over and over again about doing government work is that it's, it's really, it can be really hard to get your foot in the door. Uh, the trick is often to link up with somebody else uh, as a subcontractor. If you connect with somebody who's, um, you know, got a contract, you can establish a reputation and eventually get to the point where you are hired directly. L Lou, do you have any experience with with helping clients with that? Is that a an area that you've been involved with? Actually, you know, we've helped clients come um, uh, come off the 8A program, it's, uh, the the SBA's 8A program. And, you know, we've seen a lot of clients that um, uh, partner, that's their big phrase in D.C., right? They partner with other contractors so that they can get their foot in the door. Um, we've worked with plenty of folks that do that, but if you, if you want to break in on your own, it's very time-consuming, difficult, and costly. David, is this helpful? Very helpful. I appreciate your time. Thank, you for, you. thank you for the phone call. If you have a question about your business, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let's, uh, let's take a call from a, uh, an occasional guest on this show, Ed Epley in Ohio. Uh, Ed um, is someone who was on the show just a couple of weeks ago. He, I met him because he facilitates sessions at Aileron, the uh, small business support organization in Dayton, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Ed. Afternoon, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good, Lou. Nice to hear your voice. You too, my friend. How are you? Good. I I I I am calling out of pure curiosity because I run into this problem with some of my clients, and I'm betting you have a perspective about the link between compensation and then people using certain processes and systems to either encourage it or get above average productivity. And I'd love to know what your, your thoughts are in general about compensation linking linked to that, that approach. Are, are, so what's your, Ed, are you asking about pay per, for performance? I, I'm talking about, Lou, when I, when I joined you, it was just after Lou started talking. I didn't hear the whole thing, but he was talking about if you have production problems, you gotta, you've got a, probably a, a process problem somewhere. And I'm wondering about the link between um, compensation and performance and, and the use of processes and systems that organizations have. Okay, so I'll, I, don't, I don't know if this will answer, Ed, but this is sort of my philosophy or our philosophy, that we believe people should be compensated fairly for doing a job, but it should be tied to performance. And we believe that all employees, or at least the key employees in an organization, should be trained and coached to exceed whatever our normal budget may or may not be, and they should be rewarded for it. So I'll give you an example. We had a, um, had a client we finished with last year that sent me an email the other day, or a couple of weeks ago, that paid out, and this is a small business, $4.5 million company, I forgot where they're at, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, that was losing money, and now they're so profitable, their, their performance checks for the fourth quarter were $44,000 to their key people, and it was to drive incremental profit. I think that when you have folks that are not executing, I don't want to reward them for not executing. That's what they get paid for. But I want to reward them for going above and beyond whatever is our minimum acceptable standard. So if we... If, if, if a department is budgeted or scheduled to do X and they could do better than X, I think that should be shared with the people. And it should be put out in advance so everybody knows what it's going to be. 
Lou, in that in that example you just gave uh, with the forty four thousand dollar checks, were the employees compensated for performance based on individual performance or as a group? It's tied together. It's two things. It's the company's performance and it's the department's performance. So if you're part of a department that exceeded your plan by quarter, you would be rewarded even if the company didn't hit its goals. But if your department performed above plan or at plan or above plan and the company hit its goals and the goals we share with everybody are down to gross margin. It's very rare that we share with all the employees down to, you know, operating profit or net profit because some of that SG&A is subjective with ownership, right? So we, we don't go all the way down to the bottom line. But if, if departmental performance, so you're in a service department and we want to have, you know, 4,000 billable service hours in a quarter. And we know every incremental hour above that 4,000 hours is going to generate incremental profit. Well, we're willing to share part of that incremental profit with the people in that service department on some formula that's set up in advance so there's no surprises. And we don't believe in doing that at the end of the year. We believe in doing it quarterly because people hey. don't, can't think a year from now. Hey, Lou, um, yes. do, you do you believe there's ever a time there should be an individual uh, component to that, or is it, should it always be the team or department? Um, I, I believe there should be many times there should be an individual component. Okay. And then how, how about does the sales, should the sales organization get comped on the, uh, the, 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 the sales organization's results or on individual salesperson? What's your thoughts there? Well, my thinking on that is that I think that uh, uh, most cases, sales folks are an island unto themselves. In some yeah. occasions, you know, you have a customer service rep working with them, maybe one yeah. or two telemarketers, maybe a market. I don't know. But for most cases, sales professionals are, you know, distinct breeds. They, they're usually rolling on their own. So I think their compensation and their performance and their results needs to be tied to their performance and their results. Can, can we go back to the, the issue of individual performance? Because I, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. It's very easy. Uh, I'm, I've heard many stories. I think it's very easy to get that wrong, that you end up incentivizing uh, things that get you in trouble. Do, do you have experience with that, Ed? Yeah, I do. And, and uh, what I've come to the conclusion is like uh, uh, structure for an organization, compensation systems, it's not like there's not a perfect one. It, there is one that's better for your situation than others, but it's a lot of times it's iterative. And the second thing I've found is that uh, whatever's working today, five years from now, could be very wrong, and you got to be open to modifying it. That's been my experience. I don't know what Lou's found. Uh, I'll tell you what we do. We, we are very deliberate and very careful before we implement any time of performance-based compensation in an organization because if you do it wrong, it could go haywire real fast. Yeah. And all of a yep. sudden, you got an owner writing a check for garbage. So we're very, very cautious on it. In fact, we might actually test it for two or three consecutive quarters before we actually make it go live. Because uh, we want the employees to buy in and we want ownership to be protected. But we want ownership to give out those checks for the right reasons and only the right reasons. And I look at a performance plan sort of like a living, breathing document. If you're not reviewing and critiquing the components of the plan every month, every quarter, it can spiral out of control because, you know, the real world changes very quickly. So this has to be part of your ongoing business development and business planning strategy all the time. And if it's not, it can smack you in the fanny. Is that what you were looking for, Mr. Epley? It sure, it sure uh, helped in validating certain things I already kind of felt and, and also gave me – I really appreciate, Lou, you, you putting the stake in the ground and believing variable comp should be part of most compensation packages. Well, I Thank do, you. and I want, to, I want to tell you something, Ed. I got so motivated listening to you and Mr. Feldman the other day. I'm holding your book in my hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, very so nice. I, I, I appreciate you. everything you do, but I really enjoyed listening to you a week or two ago. All right. I'll let you guys take other callers. Thanks Thank for the call, Ed. Well. Appreciate it. See you. Uh, bye. Let's go to Joan in Florida. Joan, welcome to Mind Your Business. There. How are you? We're doing great. What's on your mind, Joan? I just, I was telling the lady earlier, I, I'm i in the restaurant industry. I have a full service restaurant, casual, and, and I think I might have a stumper because nobody's ever figured this one out. How do I, I seem like I'm working 24 7. Uh, how do I find people that I don't have to babysit for? You know, in our industry, I hope. 
I'm always here. Lou? Uh, I'm not sure what was the question. I th- exactly. The question is, I think, how you get good people so that uh, a restaurant owner doesn't have to be there 24-7. Um, Do I have that Joe, right, Joan? Is that basically what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I left at 3. I'm back here at 11.30. And how, how long have you had the restaurant, and, and has it been this way all along? I've had it for seven years. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in Fort Lauderdale area, there's, you know, people come and go, but it just seems like I think I've got good people, and the next thing I know, they're they're stealing from me, or they're doing stuff, and I'm constantly having to be there on top of everything. If I walk away, it goes away. I just wondered if you guys had any I, wisdom. Lou, I know you've had this conversation there. with people before. Well, what, what Lauren, she asked for wisdom. That's your department. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joan, here's, here's what I think. I, uh, um, uh, I have uh, one business agreement with my wife. I can do anything I want in business, anywhere, anytime, as long as it's never a restaurant. And the reason is because everybody believes and thinks they're your partner. So you, I presume you knew what you were getting into when you got into it. However, um, there is a very successful restaurant here in Orlando, and one of the the owner, the, the managing partner of the restaurant, is probably there about four hours a day. And what he's got is is all of his registers are obviously computerized, and he's got cameras all around the place. And he is not shy to pull someone up on his cell phone wherever he is at that point in time and call an employee and say, "Hey, what are you doing there? Hey, what are you doing there?" So he's not physically in the building more than four or five hours a day. In fact, he's only there for, you know, that 6 to 10, 6 to 11 o'clock at night uh, timeline. So I don't know about your training program with your people. I don't know about your accountability program with your people. I don't know how you compensate them. I don't know how you differentiate between the front and the back end of the house. But there's a whole process here that needs to happen. But, Lou, you can ask some questions about those things if you'd like to know more about them. Okay. Joan, would you like to tell me, how do you, how do you get people for the front end of your house, the, the servers, those folks? Uh, they're pretty nomadic. I mean, down here, they're, they come and go. Uh, they, the restaurant industry, naturally, is very big down in the Fort Lauderdale market. So I don't really have a problem getting them in the door. It's the constant moving out the door. Okay. Uh, whether so... I have to fire them or they don't no call, no show. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had I had a similar in the industry experience years ago. I owned uh, six beauty salons a thousand years ago, and I don't know how to cut hair. But I knew that it was so competitive. I had to do something different to keep people in my shops instead of letting them go elsewhere. So what I did, and we're talking about 25, 26, 27 years ago before the Affordable Care Act or anything like that came about, is I provided health insurance to all my employees. All right. Now, I needed to raise my prices a buck or half a buck or two bucks to do that, which I did, but my employees never left. So to me, I think when you get good employees, you got to treat them right. So that's one of the things you got to sort of find out what matters to those nomadic people, because that is an industry that's quite nomadic. But depending on the benefits that you might be able to offer them, you might be able to have better retention. Joan, have you tried to do anything to make your restaurant a special place to work that people might not want to leave just because they get offered, you know, a little bit more per hour somewhere else? We have parties, you know. <laughs> I try to be friendly with all of them. Uh, but, uh, no, nothing, nothing organized. I think you might nothing want to think is- about that. Uh w- w- you know, Lou's example was offering a, a benefit that wasn't widely available at the time. Um, there might be something like that that you could think about today, or also, you know, how you how you manage people in the uh, in the restaurant. Is it's it also a, it's a fine line between socializing with your staff in a social environment to begin with, a restaurant, a bar, whatever it is, versus uh-huh. being the versus being the employer slash final authority. And it's a fine line. Yes, it is. Joan, do you have any thoughts on, you know, having spoken with your employees, is there anything that you've thought about trying that you think might make it uh, the kind of place where people would would want to to work and want to stay? Well, again, it's not as much want to stay 
I've got the people. I don't really have a big problem hiring people. We're, we're naturally we're seasonal, as well. It's it's getting good people uh, because there's tons of people, uh, and they come in for usually the wrong reasons. I think they you know they come from TGI Fridays. They come from another um, concept. So you know they're trained when they get there. So I have two questions uh, for you, Joan. Number one, are you profitable today? Not where I want to be, and certainly I, you would tell me I'm not profitable. Let's well, that, that, that would be me because I would tell that to anybody. And then number two, <laughs> number two is let your staff see you're not willing to just hire everybody that comes to the front door. Be more selective. Go with fewer that are better than more that are weaker. Start uh -huh. to take your life back. Okay. Um yeah, I had a friend in the industry. Well, no, I, was, I had a friend in the industry that tells me not to count on the, the training from somewhere else that I guess maybe look at a training program for me because I really don't have much of a past the basics of my restaurant versus the one they worked at. So uh, think about but it, you're think right, about maybe. It, think about it like this if you don't mind. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Find a way to manage by the numbers. So... You should know what a service should generate. You should know how many times that table should turn. You should know what each portion costs you. You should know what the margin on each portion is. Find a way to manage by the numbers and make decisions that are concrete based on the numbers. And not the personalities. Just forget <laughs> that. You're the only personality that matters right now, based on the numbers. Lou, that's obviously good advice, but you you are giving Joan more work to do, and her problem <laughs> that she called with is that she's already working around the clock. What aside from doing what you suggested in terms of trying to hire better people so that she spends less time um, hiring more and more people who come and go quickly, um, are there other things she can do to get back in her life? Um, I'm well, afraid I think to... I... Go ahead, Joan. I'd rather hear you. Well, I think the other gentleman just said something that was pretty much part of my call is uh, when I say not babysitting, you know, I, my food cost is going up. Uh, and I think what the other gentleman was talking about managing by the numbers, uh, that's probably where I was mainly headed is... Uh, and I use the employees, but, you know, the employees are the ones that I think are making my food costs go up. You know, why is it 10 points up of where it used to be? Uh, and that's what I'm doing 24-7. I'm more maybe trying to catch people doing things wrong. Well, you're going to have to, un unfortunately, you know, to slay the dragon, you got to work harder to begin with. you got to find a way to attack whatever your main problems are quicker. So my favorite restaurant here in Orlando is packed every night, and I tell them every time, raise your entree prices two bucks, raise your appetizers a dollar, raise your desserts a dollar. You're sold out every night, turning your table two or three times. Incremental revenue, incremental profit goes right to the bottom line. But they have control over their business, and they also have three family members there, one running the kitchen, one running the bar, one running the floor. So you sound like you're, you're, alone, you're, sound like you're alone on your island. And I think what you need to do on your island is pick the biggest challenges you have and get them under control. And if you need to, get your CPA to come in there and help you or someone that you trust to help you. And if you want to call me after this and talk about it, feel free. I'd be happy to help you. Is that, oh, that would be great. Is this helpful, yes. Joan? Absolutely. I appreciate it. I'll keep listening. Maybe I'll get some more tips, huh? Please keep listening, and please call back and let us know. We'd love to know uh, how things go for you. Thanks for your well, call. Thank you very much. If you have a question about your business, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Lou, uh, we got to take a break in a second, but um, you heard frustration in, in, in Joan's uh, voice. I'm sure that's frustration you've heard many times. All the time, and quite frankly, even the first caller, that uh, David from Oklahoma City. I mean, when you're trying to knock down walls like he's trying to do, it is so difficult. And you painted that picture of Joan alone on her island. I think 
you know, that's that's the worst possible thing when you feel like you're fighting this battle and just don't know where to turn, where to get help. It's gut wrenching. It keeps you up all night. Uh, we will come back to these happy thoughts in just a moment. Our number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. If you have a situation you'd like to share with us, please give us a call. Our producer Michelle Stucker is standing by. We'll have more with Lou Mosca in just a minute. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM one eleven. You're listening to. Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Lou Mosca, one of our regular guests, taking your calls. Lou is Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services and a regular contributor at Forbes.com. On Twitter, he's at Mosca Small Biz. That's M-O-S-C-A, Small Biz. If you have a question or a comment about your business, give us a call. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Lou, there were so many interesting uh, issues that came up in that conversation with Joan. One I'd like to go back to is what you said about your favorite restaurant in Orlando, where you keep telling them to raise the prices, and it sounds like they don't do it. Uh, why do you? Th- I think that's a, a, a common refrain. A lot of businesses are are afraid to raise prices. Uh, why do you think that is? I think I think there's a huge difference in mindset between um, a small business owner, someone doing you know a million, two million, three million a year, versus that five hundred million billion dollar company. So I think their mindset is, to some degree, we got them. They're happy. Why should we rock the boat? It's only a half a buck. But I sort of look at it like this. If you're, if they're happy and they keep coming back and you're doing, you know, 3,000 entrees a week or 1,000 entrees a week, that's pure profit, 50 cents or a dollar an entree. And if they're that happy and they, and they care so much about you that people are selling you out every night, they're not going to complain about 50 cents or a dollar. And if they do, they weren't that happy. You'll just replace them with someone else. But small business owners are always reluctant to raise their prices. You, you make it sound so easy and obvious. That's why I get the big bucks. <laughs> but 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 you, I know you still have trouble convincing people to do it. We do. We we listen. We don't. You know, it is not one of the first things we deal with at a client, but we will look at with every client, when is the last time you passed along a price increase? And quite frankly, if you're only raising your price to cover your price increases, then your margins are going down. So there's got to be an incremental increase above and beyond whatever the cost of your increase is. And if, you're not, if you get in the habit of not passing it along, and then you wake up in year three, four, or five and say, oh, shucks we should have done or we could have done or we need to do you now your customers or your clients are really going to be upset with you because the bump you have to put in place to even get close to even now it seems a little inflated well th- this is an interesting time for this conversation because we we are seeing for the first time in a long time a little bit of the, the rumblings of inflation there you know there's reason to think that um, that many of the businesses you deal with could be facing higher costs and could be starting to think about passing those costs along. Uh, but but it's just as what you just said, that would be just to recoup their, uh, their you know, it's, it's not going to help their margins. It's just going to recoup higher costs. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, I, you and I, I, again, I think we had a conversation maybe about a year ago where, where I, ch- I said to you, I believe that profits for a lot of businesses have, businesses have been artificially inflated so and my logic has always been there is no way the prime rates going to be where it is so that if you're borrowing and you're paying a point over prime and prime was one you know you don't deserve to be paying two percent interest you're a four million dollar company your rates are going to go up so their cost of money has been artificially suppressed and then the second thing i've always been concerned about is that the cost of fuel so anyone that thought a gallon of gas was going to stay at $2.10 forever was just confusing themselves. There's just 
mental craziness, not going to happen. So those were two points I always felt people were giving themselves credit for performing better than they actually were. And then the third thing is I'll give you an example. Like all of this talk about tariffs and everything, I haven't had one client come to me and say I'm worried about tariffs. Not a, not a steel fabricator. I haven't had one come to me and worry about tariffs. None of them. They're worried about what goes on within their four walls that they can control. Are so you? Just, do you think they should be worried about tariffs? I think as an owner, you should be worried about everything. Because I've talked to owners who, who are worried about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, the folks I, we deal with and that I have dealt with, not one has brought it up to us. And in fact, in our opinion, now whether this is right or wrong, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but if tariffs become an issue, then they become an issue for everyone. So theoretically, everyone will be on level playing field. So but my point is, between interest rates and fuel prices being low and inflation being at virtually nothing for the last couple of years, then I think people have lulled into thinking they're doing better than they might be. So at this point in time, given the situation you just described with the potential for increased inflation, with the potential for uh, interest rates to go up, what should an owner be thinking? Well, you know, I was thinking about Joan on the break there for a little bit, and I think they, the, these things we do, this is called work. And work is hard to begin with. It's not called play. It's not called sport. It's not called fun. It's called work. So I think that every owner should objectively look at how they do what they do and take your P&L and factor in where you think interest rates and the cost of money is going to be over the next 6 to 12 months and how that would have affected your P&L. And factor in what you think inflation is going to do to your cost if you're buying, you know, uh, copper, you're buying corrugated, you're buying lumber, whatever that is. What do you think it's going to do to your costs over the next 6 to 12 months? Factor that into last year's P&L, and then finally the cost of fuel, plus whatever labor increases you might have, especially if you're a union shop. And now take a realistic look at where you're at. And if you don't like it, now's the time to act. Don't wait till the end of next year, because then it's too late. The results took place already. And action should be a thorough review, and how can we tie everybody together on a performance plan? Boy, that's a lot of talking. Sorry about that. No, that's that's what I was looking for. Uh, I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Lou Mosca. If you have a question about your business, if you're struggling with something, this is an opportunity to speak with someone who's been there. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Lou, another thing we, we didn't really have time to get into with Joan was the issue of how she's compensating her uh, employees. You you did allude to it, uh, but we didn't really get her to discuss that. Um, I, I know you have concerns about uh, bi- minimum wage laws and businesses that uh, are forced to choose between paying, a say, a $15 minimum wage and maybe look at some form of automation. Uh, how do you factor that into this conversation? I think uh, my personal opinion is everyone is underpaid, and everyone everywhere is underpaid. I think that markets determine what your worth might be, and if you want that to change, you need to do something about your own circumstances. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean everyone is underpaid? I think everyone deserves to make as much money as they possibly can. So I don't think... I just think everyone is entitled to make as much money as they possibly can. The the NBA player, the uh, McDonald's hamburger flipper, I believe everybody should make you, you as don't much think money as possible. Most people in the NBA are, are underpaid, do you? That never went through my head, but, okay. I, but I respect that they were able to get it to right. where they're at. I, I have great Agreed. respect for that, okay? So somehow, some way, that went from, you know, a sport to a monstrous business. So I, I look at, you know, forget theoretical on on how minimum wage even came about because nowadays it's irrelevant what is what is relevant is what are folks doing to earn a living and what can they do to provide more to their employer so their employer can provide more to them and it's got to be reciprocal it can't just be one way and i'm always worried that it's only one way especially when states mandate what you have to do why does 
something like that. If the state, well, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you what you mean. If if the state mandates it, why does that make it more likely that it's not reciprocated? That it's just uh, the employer thinking about what they can do for the employee. Okay, so, so state mandates that you have to go from whatever minimum wage is nine dollars, ten dollars, eleven dollars to fifteen, and you have thirty, forty employees, and you're a you're a retail store, you're a fast food restaurant, or uh, whatever, whatever it is that they mandate that you have to do this. Can that owner pass those costs along quick enough to be okay is the first thing. And the second thing is, if the state mandated it, what do you think the possibility is that you're going to get more productivity out of those folks that just got an increase because the state mandated it? It wasn't earned. It was given. So I'm not, I, have, I don't have an issue necessarily with the fact that people sh- should and could make more money. I think it's great. It's America. I love that. But I think it should be earned and not forced upon. That's just my two cents. Well, let's come at it from a different direction. As you know, uh, at Forbes, we pick our annual list of Forbes small giants every year. Mm-hmm. We pick 25 companies that we think are arguably the best small businesses in America. And... I haven't looked at this scientifically, but I have a sense that the overwhelming majority of these companies, and they, they range from you know very small, a couple million dollars in revenue, to some with you know more than a hundred million dollars in revenue, but most much closer to uh, one or two than to a hundred. My sense is that most of them uh, don't even think about minimum wage because they pay more than that, and. Um, and this is sort of what I was trying to get at with Joan a little bit. They also think about, you know, what is, what can they create in their environment? What can they make special about their business that makes it uh, a place where people, you know, want to work? And, you know, I was thinking about this with Joan. We, we have one company, I can't mention the name, uh, they're applying to be on the list. We're, we're actually picking uh, our list in the next week or so, and we'll announce it in the middle of May. But there's one company um, that's you know it it, it hires it te- it's on a college campus it hires young people uh, to work in a retail environment there's tremendous turnover they were concerned about the amount of time they were spending training employees who left very quickly and their answer was to to change the environment um, they they don't pay a ton of money uh, but they they do train people really well, and they train them to do everything in the store. In fact, what they, their goal, real goal is to train people to be entrepreneurs. They want them to understand how the business works so that when they do choose to leave, they could conceivably start their own business. And, um, you know, what they found is people enjoy working there more as a result. They, they actually, they don't have, um, they don't have, pit bosses. They share that duty. Uh, they, uh, they alternate. Everybody gets a chance to be in charge for a shift or however they break it up. And as a result, their turnover, despite you know, hiring college kids, is dramatically lower than it, than it used to be and dramatically lower than the, the industry average. Um, so I guess my question to you is, should the minimum wage really be an issue? If you're running a successful business, you know why should you even be thinking about that? Well, quite frankly, I, I see. I totally agree with that. I wouldn't hire anyone at minimum wage, and in fact, everyone I hire, everybody we bring on, is paid a fair wage and an incentive plan right out of the gate, right out of the gate, because we want to teach them about moving forward and building a career, and this is the philosophy that we use in our business. So I would never think of hiring anyone at minimum wage personally. However, um, there are a lot of folks that do, and there are a lot of folks that believe in churn and burn. I'm not one of them. So this person that's applying to be on your small giants list, you know, they've carved out a niche that maybe, potentially, possibly differentiates themselves from other retailers in that community. Well, that's what retailers need to do, especially retailers, where they're combating the likes of those big box companies that can beat you to death on price or something has to make them unique. And if their uniqueness is their special people and how they treat them, I think that's wonderful. My name is Lauren Feldman. I'm talking to Lou Mosca. If you've got a question about your business, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Lou, I don't know if you had a chance to, to, to read it yet. We just did a story on a retail chain called Vineyard Vines. Are you familiar with them? The clothing thing. Yeah, uh, with a nautical theme. Right. Uh, started by a couple of guys 
Uh, more than 10 years ago. I forget exactly. It, it's a pretty impressive story. Uh, they've actually... At one point, they thought about selling a small stake in it a couple of years ago, and they were uh, they got a valuation from Goldman Sachs of a billion dollars. They do, I think, around five hundred million in, in revenue now. Mm-hmm. They have lots of stores. They do online. I think, but what's really interesting is that they're really emphasizing uh, brick and mortar. Uh, while most people are going direct to consumer online, uh, they're building a lot more stores, and their uh, their theory is that. Um, that's their best marketing. I mean, people people become aware of the store when there's one down the street, and suddenly in that area where they open a store, their online sales jump uh, dramatically as well. I'll show you two thoughts on that. So number one is Lou is a dinosaur. Lou will not buy clothing apparel online. <laughs> I just I have to. I want to go touch it, feel it, hold it, rub it up against my arm, and see how it feels. I like to do that. Second thing is that. I think this company that you're referring to is still in such of an infancy, there's a newness to it. I think if you fast forward 20 yeah, years Yeah, $500 million now, in sales. Well, but that's, that's small. I mean, in the apparel world, that's small. Right? Okay, so, but... So 20 years from now, you know, will they still want all those brick-and-mortar stores? Or whoever potentially buys them, will they still want all those That's a great question. So, you know, right now, while they're building a brand and there's a uniqueness to them, it's like, you know, when they first started popping open all the Apple stores. And you can pop open 40 million of them. It was okay. It was so new, so dynamic, so fresh, so invigorating. People wanted to go in, touch it, feel it, smell it, play with it, have that Apple person work with them, whatever they're called, these Apple people in there. Um, but <laughs> Geniuses that, so is what they call them. That's right, the geniuses. That's right. You go to the genius Bar, right so but but i think there's a there's a uniqueness to that so i'm a firm believer in retail if you're going to have brick and mortar you have to be so unique so special that people can't wait to come and then you better be ahead of the curve because sooner or later that's going to end and you want to sell before that happens i don't know don't you see it working together i i think their their point about how um opening that store is the best marketing, even for online sales, that that intrigues me. And it, it seems to me there are a lot of things you can do coordinating the two. And, and well, I think there are a lot of retailers looking at that now. But that's all possible. But if you go back to before 2008 when the world collapsed, uh, you know, every car dealer out there, every GM, Chevy, Ford car dealer, you know, they would sell new cars, make no money, with the goal of getting people into the service department. And what happened when the world fell apart in 08 and 09, Half the dealerships closed because that wasn't a good model. Right. So right now this is a good model for these folks, and that's fantastic. Capitalize on it. But you've got to be ahead of the trend, and the trend at some point is going to be how do we reduce our overhead and still keep our margins growing. And they'll figure that out. They've figured out how to get to $500 million in 10 years. They're obviously pretty bright. So uh, we're running a little short on time here, but I'm not going to let this show end without going back to one other thing that came up in the conversation with Joan, which is something I knew about but I'd kind of forgotten about, which is the image of you in the beauty salon business. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having trouble picturing that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen, Lou? Uh, How did you get into that business? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh <laughs> you my brought goodness. it up. I, yeah, but, you know, yeah, I, oh, okay. So necessity <laughs> is the mother of invention, right? So I had been involved in some other businesses. Some had worked pretty well. Some didn't work pretty well. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So I had a strategy, and I was never a hairdresser, and but I had a strategy. I'm it. prepared to believe that. Okay. and But my strategy was if you build it, and you make it attractive, and you make people have fun, can you generate enough revenue where I could make X amount of dollars per week per salon? I had six salons, and I had in my head exactly what I wanted to earn each week. Other than that, all I wanted to do was pay the bills. So my wife got a lot more emotionally involved with the salon business than I did, and in fact, when we split, she kept the salons and sold them eventually, which is all great with me. But it was just a means to an end. And I, I will tell you, I never enjoyed it. Well, well how did it go? It went okay. It, it actually did exactly what I wanted it to do. But I worked at it seven days a week. Yeah, I never, yeah. Seven days a week. And medical benefits, seven days a week. Training once a month, seven days a week. You're in a service business. You can't close. Did you learn things doing that that are still valuable to you today? 
I learned things I didn't like. Such as? Such as, um, such as you can't let your employees demand how things should run because you get so dependent on certain people in a beauty salon that they think that they're worth, can be worth more than they actually are. And in fact, that seems to contradict what I said before, that I think everybody should get whatever they can get. It's a good country. Go after it. But in a business like this where you have, you know, and it, my best salon was doing about $14,000 a week in business. So that's about six or $700,000 a year. And way back in the day, there were about 300,000 beauty salons in the United States, and $14,000 was a good number. But a couple of my other ones were doing about $3,500, $4,000 a week. So you got to make all the pieces fit, and each salon had its own P&L. And I would go over its own P&L with the, with the salon manager, and I had a manager in each shop. And sometimes they didn't want to get it. And quite frankly, I know a lot more now about business than I did back then. Back then, I just had a simple mission. I want to make X amount of dollars per week per salon. What would you do differently if you were running that business today? Um, I'd automate it more. I would make this, the salons bigger than they were. I'd, I'd, uh, instead of being open seven days a week, I'd be open probably 18 hours a day, seven days a week instead of eight or ten hours a day, seven days a week. Getting a haircut to me should be a convenience. Just like you can go to your gym at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's open. Just like a smart car dealer should be open with the service department till midnight. Because cars don't break down at dealerships' convenience. They have a problem on your schedule, not their schedule. So I think it's about accommodating consumers better, and I could have done a lot better at that point. How would you, quickly, how would you have dealt with the issue of a stylist who gets popular and then leaves and takes the business with them? That happened plenty of times. Happened plenty of times. So what, what a lot of people do when that happens is they try and steal a stylist from another shop. I never wanted to do that. I never would do that. So me, I just bit the bullet and tried to build it back up with the other people and new people working, Saturday, working Sundays and Mondays, which were the slowest days, and creating incentives for new customers to come in. That's what I always tried to do. But my, because I gave medical benefits, I had very, very, very little turnover, Lauren. Last question real quickly. Was it an advantage or a disadvantage that it was a business that you didn't really have a passion for? Yep. Probably both. Probably both. But I will tell you, if you don't have a passion for the business that you're in, you're making a mistake. And that's why I knew that was not, you know, an end game for me. It was just meanings to an end at a point in time. Lou Mosca, thank you once again for joining us today. It's always good to be with you, Lauren. You have a great day. Our pleasure. Thank you. If you want to keep up with Lou, go to amserve.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mosca Small Biz, and you can read his posts at Forbes.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'll be, we're here live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next week. My thanks to audio engineer Dion Simpkins and producer Michelle Stucker. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at L Feldman. And if you liked what you heard here, check out Forbes.com slash entrepreneurs, where we have journalists and business owners writing about what it takes to run a business. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and this has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School, Sirius XM 111. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.